Auto insurance can all seem the same until it comes time to use it. So don't get stuck paying more for less coverage. Switch to USA Auto Insurance and you could start saving money in no time. Get a quote today. Restrictions apply. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode features dramatizations and discussions of gore, insect horror, and imagery that people with combat-related PTSD may find triggering. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Please note the story you're about to hear is derived from the single scriptural reference to Abaddon's locus, which is found in the New Testament's Book of Revelation. It's not a direct retelling and combines elements from a number of biblical legends and stories about locusts, plagues, and first-century combat for dramatic effect. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to ParCast's Mythical Monsters. Each week, we discuss some of the world's most terrifying legendary creatures in hopes of understanding the cultures they come from and what they might represent to us now. Today's episode on Abaddon's Locus is the fourth stop in our journey through Abrahamic legend. If you missed last week's episode on the giant angel-human hybrids known as the Nephilim, be sure to double back and give it a listen. While the Nephilim can now be found as the protagonists of urban fantasy novels and even video games, their original incarnation is much darker. Today, we're discussing Abaddon's Locusts, an obscure but truly disturbing monster army found in the Book of Revelation. While their description is less than 12 lines long, these part-insect, part-horse, part-man creatures make a real impression torturing everyone they see who isn't marked for safety by God. As always, you can listen to Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals on Spotify. Unlike many of the monsters we cover on this show, Abaddon's locusts appear in only one text, the New Testament's Book of Revelation, which recounts the apocalyptic visions of a writer who identifies himself only as John. Revelation is a major source of influence in American society, from the Left Behind books to Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman's Good Omens to doomsday cults like David Koresh's Branch Davidians. The Book of Revelation gives us the concepts of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the seven seals, and the Antichrist. In Revelation, the breaking of the seven seals brings about the sounding of seven trumpets, with each signaling a new horror, from showers of hail, fire, and blood to falling stars. 
One such star is described in the section of Revelation known as the first woe. Revelation chapter 9 verses 1 to 3 reads, Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. He opened the shaft of the abyss, and smoke rose out of it like smoke from a giant furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then out of the smoke came locusts onto the earth, and they were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. Both Hebrew and Christian Apocrypha frequently associate star imagery with angels. With that in mind, Revelation's passage on the fifth trumpet suggests that Abaddon, the angel of death and destruction, is given access to the dark depths that confine Lucifer and his fallen angels. Yet according to Revelation, when the gates to darkness are thrown open, the first thing to emerge will not be fallen angels, but something even more terrifying. A swarm of stinging insects with venom to match the torment of hell itself. The smoldering ruins of Ezekiel's kingdom lay at his feet. He brought his lips between his teeth, trying not to cry. He was a ruler. There was no room for tears, only vengeance. From across the way, he saw the culprit. A shimmering sword in hand, Jorah stood nearly 12 feet tall, laughing. Ezekiel wasted no time. He charged towards Jorah, sword raised. He could see the terror in his enemy's eyes, and he relished it. Those who wished to pray at the altar of Abaddon should expect that their own destruction was coming. Jorah raised his arms to defend himself, but it was too late. He cried out as Ezekiel's sword crashed against his limbs. Ezekiel felt the sweet rush of victory, the hunger for destruction and ruin. He'd forced his will upon those that wished to harm his kingdom. But then a sharp pain shot through his ear, interrupting his celebration. Ezekiel turned and looked up into the steely-eyed gaze of his mother, Milka. The illusion was shattered. His kingdom was just a pile of pillows. His sword was a plank of wood. But the pain in his friend Jorah's eyes was real. A splinter had wedged its way into his skin where Ezekiel attacked him. Ezekiel's mother's face was frightening, harder than he'd ever seen her. But then she let go of Ezekiel's ear and told him to hold Jorah still. She cooed and teased Jorah as she pulled the small sliver of wood from his forearm. The boy promised that he would never again try to destroy Ezekiel's kingdom. Ezekiel wanted to laugh, but he saw the look in his mother's eyes and stopped. Jorah was sent back to his own home, and Ezekiel was left with no allies in the face of his mother's wrath. As they ate their dinner, Ezekiel continued to sneak looks at Milka. At any moment, her calm demeanor might transform to rage. 
He had, after all, destroyed the center of their tent and hurt his friend in an attack, but she ate quietly and encouraged him to do the same. He settled into bed and breathed a sigh of relief. Nothing had happened. He'd protected his kingdom and escaped the wrath of Empress Milka. Visions of his next skirmish with Jorah danced in his head. Until Milka sat on the floor next to him. She smoothed the hair away from his face. Her voice was even and calm as she explained that there were consequences to his actions. If he was going to invoke the name of Abaddon, the destroyer, while he played, he must be prepared for the locusts. Ezekiel scoffed. I'm not afraid of some bugs. They will bow before me. I am the great ruler of this land, and I can squish them in my hands. Milka laughed softly. The locusts that lived in trees and made a nuisance of themselves would certainly be afraid of Ezekiel on their own, but those were not the locusts she was speaking of. The small flame of their lamp wavered as she began to explain. In the days before the Romans overran Anatolia and sacked Jerusalem, before the prophets, before the floodwaters rose and the sky fell, God began his great works, shaping out continents and life from nothingness. But as he began to create, a dark shape began to destroy. Abaddon, death and destruction incarnate. But as God's creations multiplied, the king of woe needed assistance to carry out his purpose. So he created an army of creatures powerful enough to break the world in two. Ezekiel sat up. He had never heard of Abaddon's army. He couldn't wait to share this information with Jorah. Milka warned Ezekiel that this was not a game. The locusts were no mere pests. They had only one purpose and one ambition, destruction. They spread through the land with reckless abandon, leaving bones and ruined cities in their wake. Nothing that stood in their path survived. Tears sprang to Milka's eyes as she spoke. Ezekiel shivered, wondering at the way she described the creatures. He asked if his mother had ever come into contact with one of them. Milka didn't answer, her gaze falling away to a long-ago time. The locusts were horse-like insects with human heads. The creature's long, flowing hair could draw blood. Their teeth were raised into points with large canines poking out of their closed mouths. Wings stretched behind their backs for miles. But their worst feature, the one that pointed to their cruel nature and true purpose, was located beneath the wings. A bulbous, shiny tail curved upwards from the monster's backs. At the end was a pointed stinger. It could paralyze a grown man between the space of an inhale and an exhale, leaving him writhing in agony, begging God for a release. Soon the victim's muscles locked up completely, rendering them immobile. 
While the person remained deathly still, the locust would toss the body back and forth. Abject horror would spill from the victim's eyes. Tears would fall unbidden down their face. The locusts would laugh as they tore flesh and bone away from the body. The victim's lip would quiver and quake, but their words would stay locked inside their mouths, nothing but whimpers and stifled screams. They could do nothing but silently pray for God to relent and make their deaths quick. Milka shivered as she spoke. They are never quick. They feed off of the terror and the pain. They mock you for your tears and revel in their ability to prolong suffering. They use each tool Abaddon granted them to paint a masterpiece of pain across the landscape. They cannot be stopped. They cannot be swayed. They are an unending plague on the earth. Milka's voice faltered as she saw the look of panic on her son's face. Were, she tried to insist, pushing tears from her eyes to give him a weak attempt at a smile. Just a bedtime story now, my little one. An unkind and unfair one. I'm sorry. Ezekiel wrapped his arms tightly around his mother. She was lying. He knew it. He felt it in the pit of his stomach and the twitch of his fingers. There were monsters in the world. She had seen them. Can I help Mama? Milka shook her head. Just don't ever do it again. Ezekiel nodded, but he would not keep his promise. Up next, Ezekiel courts either heroism or hubris. This episode is brought to you by Bai. It's Wonder Water. What makes Bai so great? It's simple. From raspberry lemon lime by Sydney Sweeney to Zambia Bing Cherry and Palavo Pineapple Mango, Bai has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. So for flavorful hydration, choose Bai. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Bai and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbuy.com. Now, back to the story. Little Ezekiel always loved playing soldier, but one night he got too rough with his best friend, and his mother told him of her own experience with violence. She described a horrifying raid on her village led by the monstrous locusts of Abaddon. She begged him to put his heroics behind him, to leave the monsters where they lay. But Ezekiel would not be dissuaded. She had opened his eyes to a world even more epic than the stories of kings he'd been told as a child. That was how Ezekiel became a monster hunter. After Abaddon's locusts emerge from the abyss in Revelation chapter 9, they begin to carry out their ravaging ruler's orders. But those words were to torture, not to kill. As verses 4 through 7 explain, 
they were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. The locusts were not given permission to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And their torture was like that of a scorpion when it stings a person. In those days, people will seek death, but will not be able to find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The early chapters of Revelation describe several forms of environmental devastation, and one could perhaps argue that ordinary locusts would be yet another form, with or without the sinister scorpion's tail. This description echoes the eighth plague of Egypt in the book of Exodus. When the Pharaoh refuses to free his Hebrew slaves, Yahweh inflicts ten plagues of escalating scale on the land of Egypt. At first, water is changed to blood. Then the Nile becomes choked with frogs. Then Yahweh cursed the Egyptians with lice, flies, and wild animals, pestilence of cattle and men, followed by a thunderstorm that rained down hail and brimstone rather than water. It was only after all of these that the eighth plague, the locusts, appeared. So many that they coated the ground and every surface, consuming all that hadn't been destroyed by the fire and hail. Despite their destructive title, Abaddon's locusts are far more targeted in their approach than the insects in Exodus. Much like the tenth plague of Egypt, in which Yahweh takes the firstborn son of each Egyptian family and their cattle, you can escape Abaddon's locusts if you have the seal of God on your forehead. For the Israelites, the seal of protection was a mark of lamb's blood on their doors, so the angel of death would pass over them. Only followers of Jesus Christ would be aware of what the seal of God would look like, so the book of Revelation reinforces the idea that the only way to escape pain worse than death is to be within the Christian fold. If you weren't familiar with Revelation, you would not see the cosmic patterns of natural disasters and historical events that lead up to the locust's appearance, leaving you awed and horrified when the strange creatures begin their attack. The years shaped Ezekiel into a different kind of man. His mother had hoped to temper his violence with her story, but it had given him a renewed purpose. Heroism, he decided, was not to be found in wars between nations, not when there were honest-to-goodness monsters in the world. So Ezekiel hunted hippos and elephants. He tamed wolves, but he still hadn't found a monster that would grant him renown for slaying it. As he searched the town notice board for any potential leads, he caught snippets of a conversation. An entire village was destroyed on the Aegean coast, opposite the island of Patmos. No signs of fire or illness. At first, people had thought it was marauders, but the gore had left witnesses nauseated and disturbed. A chill ran down Ezekiel's spine as he recognized the description of the horrors they had seen. They almost exactly mirrored his mother's bedtime story. 
The locusts were real, and he finally knew where to find them. He stepped away from the notice board, following the sounds of the two voices. When their conversation quieted, he stepped in. Ezekiel told the two men that he had spent his entire adult life hunting creatures of darkness. He would be happy to suss out the cause of the massacre and destroy it. One of the men looked at him skeptically. There were many people with vengeance coursing where blood should be. Perhaps the people of the village had caught God's wrath. It was best to leave things alone. Ezekiel didn't agree. He grabbed onto the man's hands, clutching them tightly as he demanded to know how he could get to Patmos. The man squeaked that he didn't know and then hurried away. Ezekiel could not find the village on a map, so he headed to the local watering hole. News of the massacre had spread through the town. Out of all the villagers he spoke to, only two were willing to help him. Their names were Palu and Nahor. The trio traveled through the desert for nearly a week. Ezekiel thought of the locusts so often that he began to picture their outlines in the distant, shimmering heat. They'd haunted his nightmares for years, but Palu told him there was no way his mind could conjure up the creature's horrible visages. To see one in person was to peer into the violent face of a hollow death. Palu had been a child when he'd last caught sight of one, and he'd barely escaped with his life as the monsters consumed his village in northwestern Anatolia. Like Ezekiel, he had spent many years dreaming of them. Perhaps it had been more than a memory, a calling. The two of them were destined to fight the locusts. Ezekiel corrected him. We're destined to defeat the locusts. Nahor laughed, harsh and loud. Ezekiel bristled in anger. Why did you come if you don't think we can win? Nahor looked to Palu. Because Palu is my friend, outsider, and you are quite entertaining. I assume that will carry over to your last moments. Nahor's voice trailed away. In fact, he'd stopped walking entirely staring into the distance on high alert. Nahor, Ezekiel ventured, his voice searching. Nahor took off running towards the distant dunes. Ezekiel and Palu shared a look and stared after him. The dune was tall, nearly 30 feet high, but it looked small at this distance. Ezekiel called after Nahor. His legs were tired from their days of walking, and he saw no need to rush now. But as he grew closer, he realized this wasn't an ordinary sand dune. The pale silica barely covered the pile of body parts. Hundreds and hundreds of body parts, Yellow bone nearly blended in with the blood-choked sands that covered the mass. Each severed hand had broken fingers, the joints pointing in all different directions. 
Lumps of flesh were interspersed throughout the piles of bone, never connected to what they should have been. He reached out to the pile and picked up a small hand. The child could not have been older than four when his arm had been ripped from his body. A woman's face stared back at him from the pit, the space below her chin a ragged, fetid hole. Her gaze was cold, her mouth open in an eternal, silent scream. Nahor's voice shook as he told them that the dune could not be more than a week old. This was the pile of discarded remains the locusts had left. Ezekiel felt his stomach twist as he took in the devastation. He forced himself to look. He forced his stomach to settle. He had asked to come here. He owed it to the dead to respectfully look at the cost of his own excitement. A clicking sound echoed in the distance, hard and fast like a child's rattle. In the next instant, Ezekiel saw a creature scurrying over the sand. It darted quickly on hooved feet, like a cockroach fleeing the light. His mother's descriptions had been accurate. This was no bedtime story. The large wings spread so wide that the desert seemed to disappear behind them. Giant fangs protruded between its lips. Long, golden hair flowed from its scalp, almost caressing the darker wings. But she'd not been able to convey the way the creature changed size as it charged through the desert. It shrank and expanded in front of Ezekiel's eyes, a strange sort of mirage that still left footprints and sound in its wake. Then it started to fly. We should go, Palu said, his usual understated tone tinged with panic. He turned toward the horizon and ran. Ezekiel and Nahor sprinted after him. Large stone structures appeared in the distance. Ezekiel kept his eyes firmly trained on them as the clicking grew louder. He would not glance behind. He would not imagine the massive teeth biting and tearing, the poison tail arched with acid dripping from a sharp point, being lifted onto the ground on clear, papery wings before plummeting, eviscerated to the world below. They made it to the town walls. Ezekiel panted as he slowed to a stop and took cover. They would be safe here. Palu and Nahor joined him, and they crouched, also panting, listening for any hint of the terrifying thing's whereabouts. They lifted their eyes to the darkening sky, searching. A massive swoop of wings let them know the locust was wheeling overhead. They ducked as it rushed past, flying back into the desert. Ezekiel peeked over the wall and watched the dark shape recede. When it had disappeared from view, he finally exhaled and stood, brushing the sand from his clothes. A clicking sound came from his right. The three men froze and turned. 
A flash of dark red wingtips peeked out from in between two houses before disappearing again. There was more than one locust here. Nahor made eye contact with Ezekiel. Then he nodded ever so slightly to his left, where a little home stood, small fires still burning inside. Ezekiel nodded ever so slightly back. A screech filled the air as the second massive locust came tearing out of the alley toward the three men. They turned and ran as yet another screech answered from the dunes. Ezekiel ran for his life. He was almost at the house when he felt a searing pain cut through his back. The locust's wingtips had brushed against him and had cut right through his flesh. He changed course into a tight alley and ran, making three turns around the house to meet his friends at the door. They rushed inside and Palyu locked the door. The three men crouched by the broken wood still licked by the flames. They could hear movement outside, a scuttling search. The creatures talked to each other in strange sounds the men didn't understand. Then, there was a polite knock on the door. The men looked at each other, frozen in dread. The knock came again and again. The men didn't breathe. Then there was only silence, except for the crackling of the fire. Suddenly, the massive locust stuck its horrifying head right through the wood of the door. Palyu grabbed a piece of kindling from the fire and hurled it at the creature. The locust screamed and jerked back, clicking in confusion as fire engulfed the doorway. As the flames rose higher, Ezekiel glimpsed the other locust's wide smile, eyes glowing like emeralds by firelight. It winked evilly at Ezekiel. Then it began to beat its wings. The powerful blast of wind threw the men backward into the fire. Luckily, the motion extinguished the flames at the same moment, leaving only weak embers floating in the air. Only embers and the two locusts' burning eyes, human but round and protruding like an insect's, they stood on opposite sides of the room, close enough to close the distance with a sprint. Ezekiel swallowed, wondering if he or the locusts were faster. He held the monster's gaze and drew his sword as the last embers fizzled out at his feet. Coming up, Ezekiel faces Venom in the dark. Now, back to the story. Ezekiel's search for glory led him toward the Aegean coast of Anatolia, where he soon heard news of an attack by Abaddon's locusts. He enlisted the help of two local men, Palyu and Nahor, to reach the fiend's last known location. They found their quarry, 
marked by the pile of mangled human remains outside a small village. But these creatures were worse than he could have ever imagined. Cornered, the three men took cover in a small house, but the two locusts found them there. After Revelation describes the locust stingers and limits, it characterizes their truly staggering appearance. Now the locusts looked like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were something like crowns similar to gold, and their faces looked like men's faces. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like iron breastplates, and the sound of their wings was like the noise of many horse-drawn chariots charging into battle. They have tails and stingers like scorpions, and their ability to injure people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. It's unclear if Abaddon is the fallen star who's given access to the abyss, or if he was bound down there with his warriors. While Abaddon's multiple names all mean either destruction or destroyer, there are theological arguments about who this angel of the abyss might actually be, with some saying he's Satan and others contending that he's the Antichrist. The chimeric description of Abaddon's locus may seem random, but their composition is made of opposites. They look like horses, but aren't horses. Instead, the beats of their wings sound like horse-drawn chariots. They have masculine faces and feminine hair. They're subjects of Abaddon, but have the markings of royalty themselves. Their appearance is terrifying because it is slippery. The sensory information they supply is constantly at odds. Ezekiel waited in the dark for the creatures to strike. He clutched his sword tightly. He held his breath in his chest. If he could catch the hint of their breath or the click of their stinger before they noticed him, maybe he could end this. A stuttering click came from behind him. He did not hesitate. Ezekiel spun, landing what felt like a mortal blow. But it wasn't the screech of a locust that greeted him. It was the sharp intake of breath before a very human scream. The sound was an unholy garble of pain, high-pitched enough to make his steel wobble. His sword was stuck inside the person. He did not know who it was. Ever calm Palu or bristly Nahor. All he knew was the well of guilt opening up beneath him. This was his fault, his quest, his desire to seek an enemy he could never really defeat, not entirely. The costs would always be too high. He placed his free hand on top of the hilt and pulled. The blade slid from the body with a wet squelch. He swallowed hard around the bile in his mouth. Something hard brushed against his ankle. Ezekiel forced himself to stay still. He'd been too quick in his judgment before. 
these creatures were smarter than he'd given them credit for. He would not make that mistake again. A soft pattering of footsteps sounded to his left. They didn't have the clipped sound of horses' hooves or skittering legs, marking them as human. Palu, the voice whispered from the darkness. Ezekiel's breath caught, mourning the kind man he had repaid with carelessness. When he managed to steady his voice, he called out to Nahor. Palu is gone. They, they tricked me in the dark. The pause between the two men was long. There was no insect click or clop of hooves. The locusts were listening, too. No doubt their horrible human mouths were grinning in the dark. Suddenly, Nahor shouted, Cowardly monsters, I never thought I'd see the day. You could not kill a warrior like Palu without trickery. A click answered him from the darkness. If Ezekiel hadn't known better, he would have said it was laughing. Nahor was not deterred. You laugh now, demon, but you will be screaming in the abyss when Yahweh claims you, bound by his will and his alone. A clicking sound reverberated against Ezekiel's neck. He stayed absolutely still, feeling small beads of sweat drip down his nape. Something's warm, wet, rotting breath puffed beside his face. The click rattled in his ear. Nahor's diatribe continued. I will spread the blood of the locusts across my armor. I will tell the truth of Abaddon's so-called army. Nothing but cowardly, useless insects. <gasps> Ezekiel heard Nahor grunt, followed by a thump as his body hit the ground. The locusts, it seemed, had tired of his insults. Nahor's breath grew shallow. Ezekiel expected him to fade quietly, becoming one with the darkness that surrounded them. Instead, the wheezing became a moan. The locusts had not killed Nahor, they had stung him. Now he would beg for death and find none. A locust passed right by Ezekiel, creating the smallest hint of a breeze. He could not waste this chance. He raised his sword high, and for a brief instant, he pictured himself and his childhood friend Jorah playing warriors in his mother's tent. Then he swung the blade down with all the strength he could muster. The locust screeched. Ezekiel reached down with his free hand and felt the hard surface of a carapace. He resisted the urge to vomit as he ran his fingers quickly along it to a sticky stump. The scorpion tail was gone. But the locust wasn't dead yet. It slammed into Ezekiel, knocking the sword from his hand and throwing him to the ground as it darted away into the darkness. The locust's otherworldly chittering grew louder until it filled the room, echoing off the building's very structure. Ezekiel crawled on the floor. His hand brushed against a still body. Palu, 
He said a silent prayer and rolled the much larger man's body on top of him, hiding beneath it. A moment later, he heard the familiar click of the locust's hooves coming nearer. Ezekiel rested his head against Palu's cold face, holding his breath. The creature came close, sniffing the area. More clicking sounded even closer. Both of the locusts were now nearly on top of him. Ever so slowly, Ezekiel felt along the floor until his fingers closed around the hilt of Palu's sword. He had one chance to get this right, for Nahor still groaning in the darkness, for Palu, who would never speak again. Uttering a silent prayer to Yahweh, Ezekiel rolled out from beneath Palu and jabbed the blade up into the darkness. An unholy wail rocked the room as the blade hit bone. Ezekiel gave a final push and felt the sword cut clean through whatever part of the creature it had found purchase in. Something substantial and round fell beside him as silken strands spilled across his hands. He'd cut off its head. He couldn't keep the laugh from bubbling out of his chest. He had done it. He had killed one of Abaddon's locusts. Palu and Nahor had been avenged. A hoof pressed against his chest. In his rush of adrenaline and relief, Ezekiel had forgotten about the second locust. The creature's eyes shone a brilliant green, illuminating the darkness that had surrounded them. Ezekiel could now see the bodies of Palu and Nahor, his fallen comrades. Palu's eyes were still, while Nahor's pleaded with him, his agony complete and ever-growing. Ezekiel swung his sword upwards, trying to connect with the shoulder of the locust. The monster pressed harder against his chest. Ezekiel let out a groan and a whimper as he felt the first rib crack. The creature leered over him, studying him with its bulging green eyes. Then it brought its face close to his and spoke in a voice Ezekiel would never have expected, honeyed but deep. A word of advice, little one, the locust said, practically purring. Never do that again. The locust lifted its foot, pulled away, and disappeared. Ezekiel wheezed in the silence, his broken ribs stinging with each breath. He had survived, but only because the locust wanted him to. It wanted someone to tell the story, to teach the children of Adam respect for their elders, the forces they'd supplanted to become God's favorites. Ezekiel laid on the stone floor and thought of his mother. Tears filled his eyes as he heard the creature flying away, leaving only the rush of wind 
from its great wings. While some hold that the author of the book of Revelation is St. John, an apostle who knew Jesus Christ, the writer never actually claims personal ties to Jesus. The only identifying information he does give is that he received his prophetic vision while on the Greek island of Patmos, just off the Turkish coast of the Aegean Sea. The book of Revelation has been dated to approximately 95 CE, at the very end of the reign of Roman Emperor Domitian, before he was assassinated by members of his own court. Domitian was the last ruler in the Flavian dynasty, a family that came to power thanks to their actions during the First Jewish-Roman War. The turning point of the war came when the Romans put down a Judean rebellion against colonial authority by sieging and then sacking Jerusalem in 70 CE. The contemporary Jewish historian Josephus wrote that over 1.1 million died during the siege and that Jerusalem's remaining 97,000 citizens were enslaved. Titus, Domitian's father, paraded the sacred Jewish artifacts from the Temple of Jerusalem through the streets of Rome. It's this traumatic event that very much defined Jewish and Christian lives in the latter half of the first century CE. Much of the Book of Revelation's vivid apocalyptic imagery focuses on the punishment of non-believers at the hands of various monsters and natural disasters. And John of Patmos's vision became a sort of battle cry for Christians facing persecution by the Roman Empire. This might explain why Abaddon's locusts draw so strongly from military imagery, particularly of armored cavalry. Rome's well-equipped and well-trained imperial horsemen were active throughout the empire. In trying to conjure the most disturbing creature they could imagine, first-century Judeo-Christians combined elements of the Eighth Plague of Egypt and the staggering might of an invading Roman fighting force. In this sense, Abaddon's locusts encapsulate the cathartic release that early Christians would have felt reading Revelation's strangest passages. They take the weapons and iconography of the oppressive Roman state and turn them into monsters who punish non-believers. When we feel powerless, we want to feel powerful. When we fear death and destruction, we want to be told that these forces can be bent to protect us. The Book of Revelation served all of these purposes for early Christians, and its most disturbing images still resonate in Western cultural understanding to this day. While Abaddon's locusts are given only 12 lines in all of Scripture, their ties to the justice of the past and promises of revenge in the future remain secure. You may not recognize them as easily as the four horsemen of the apocalypse or the number of the beast, but once you've seen them in your mind, you'll never forget them again.
Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.